Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you, Stacy, for reading that for us. We're continuing our uh, reading and studying and thinking as a church family through the Gospel of Mark. And Mark started out this way in chapter 1, verse 1, that this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. You know, I, uh, if your pastor says, I'm going on vacation, and would you preach, beware. Because he might just hand you a passage that the first time, the second time, the third time you read through it, you say, what am I going to say of relevance to my church family from this story of the beheading of John the Baptist? What in the world does this have to do with me? In fact, because Mark is all about this good news, announcing that the anointed king is here, and that word good news is used regularly throughout, you really have to wonder how this R-rated story, rated R because of extreme graphic violence and sexuality, how does it fit with good news? And so I'd like to take uh, time this morning and 
read through it with you, think about it together and explore and see if we can discover together how in the world this story fits with the good news that Jesus, the anointed king, has come, that a new kingdom is here, and the old kingdom is passing away, and all things are being made new. And so what I'm going to invite you to do with me is to work through it in this way. First of all, I'm going to take us and invite and walk through with you experiencing the story as it's written for us by Mark. As the Holy Spirit guides him to put these things down for our benefit. Secondly then, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explore, well, what is the significance of Mark placing this story at just this point in his gospel? And then to end up together with what is the significance of this story for my story, for your story. So let's uh, get ourselves set up for this story. This is a story that comes following what we looked at last week, uh, starting in Mark chapter 6. Jesus was teaching. He sent out his 12 disciples. He gave them instructions. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. If anyone doesn't welcome you or listen to you, leave the place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and they preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. That's the setup as we enter into the story that we are reading through today. Because it's when King Herod heard about all that Jesus and all that Jesus' disciples, Jesus' apprentices that he sent out to do the work, when Herod hears about that, when he hears that Jesus' name was becoming more and more well-known, Herod is mystified. Now, it would help us to understand a little bit about this Herod. There are a number of uh, this title, Herod, was given to a number of people, Herod the Great. Uh, This particular Herod is Herod Antipas, who is one of the sons of Herod the Great. And as we hear in the story, he had, while his brother Philip, probably his half-brother, was still living, Herod Antipas had taken Herodias, the wife of Herod Philip, to be his own wife. Uh, Now we're going to see, even as we continue examining the story, this particular Herod Antipas is not the best of men. He claims to be a follower of God, of the Jewish religion. He rules over a small area, although he's referred to in the Gospels as a king, uh, that's really pretense on his part. He really is more like a governor of a number of cities of a region. And this Herod is quasi-religious, 
but corrupt. This Herod is, there's no other words for it, he's a dirty old man. This Herod is interested in what John has to say, say and yet is repulsed by what John has to say. This Herod says, I follow God, but he built his palace, he built his getaway on top of a Gentile cemetery, history tells us. So although he says, I am a Jew, I follow God, it's really and truly nothing of the sort. Herod, in fact, is no different than any of this world's worst rulers and politicians. Now, the story also involves, as we're, as we're looking at the larger background of it, with uh, John the Baptist. I always smile at this, having grown up in the Baptist church. I thought, well, you know, our founder was in the Bible. Uh, it took me a while to grow out of my childhood and to realize, okay, it's not Baptist as in Baptist uh, or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Episcopal. This is John, which John? Uh, people didn't usually have surnames at that point. So if you said John, which John? Uh, the John that was baptizing. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 1, we find out that this John was sent by God. God said in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 2, I will send my messenger. John proclaimed his message, baptizing in the Jordan River. But John was continually saying, hey, somebody's coming after me, and that person is far more, far greater, far more powerful than I am. And in fact, Jesus doesn't start his work of proclaiming the message until John is taken to prison, chapter 1 tells us. So John was coming to announce that Jesus was coming, and then John's work was wrapping up. Jesus comes on the scene proclaiming the same message that John had been proclaiming, repent and believe the good news, the king, has arrived. Jesus also points out to us, and John records it for us, as do the other gospels, that this John, John the one who was baptizing, was predicted to come by the Old Testament prophets, who said, Elijah, or one like Elijah, will come. And in Mark chapter 9, when we get to that point later on, we're going to hear Jesus explain that, in fact, Elijah did come in the person of John the Baptist, who was like Elijah in so many ways. And Jesus says to his disciples, Elijah did come, and they did to him Mark chapter 9, they did to him everything that they wished. 
imprisoned him, and killed him. Now we also need to know as background for this story that John is Jesus' cousin. In Luke chapter one, in fact, we find out that John and Jesus have been closely, strangely, mysteriously connected even from the time before they were born. So after the angel tells Mary, you're gonna have a child, the power of the Holy Spirit is gonna create a child within you, you're gonna give birth to that child. Mary goes in Luke chapter one to visit Elizabeth, John's mother, and as Mary comes up to where Elizabeth is, Elizabeth feels John, it tells us, leap in her womb. Now, obviously, I have never been a pregnant mom, okay? I am told that babies move around as they're developing in their mother's womb, but this was something extraordinary. Elizabeth is pretty far along and she feels something that she hasn't felt before. As Mary comes bearing Jesus, Elizabeth goes out to meet her. So there's a connection of these two cousins from before the time they were born. The last thing that's worth knowing about this story may not come to us obviously unless we happen to be Jewish people of the first century who had been reading and learning and memorizing and heard read to them the Old Testament. Because there are at least two Old Testament stories that strongly influence the way Mark tells the story here. One is the stories in 1 Kings especially in chapter 19 and chapter 21, that tell the story of Elijah. Ha, there's that Elijah-John connection again. That tell the stories of Elijah and how King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel at that time, and his wife Jezebel strongly reacted to Elijah. And if you were to go back and read those stories in 1 Kings 19 and 1 Kings 21, you would find Jezebel, much like Herodias in this story, saying, Elijah, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to have you killed. You would find also that Jezebel is plotting with Ahab to murder an innocent man, Naboth, so that they can seize his property and have it for themselves. And God sends Elijah to say to Ahab, you've violated the law, you've killed Naboth, and you've seized his property. Much like John had been saying to Herod, what you are doing is against the law. The second Old Testament story that creates a backdrop for this, as we're listening to it, is the story of Esther. In Esther chapter one, King Ahasuerus has or, or calls for Vashti the queen to come in and dance before his party guests as he's been celebrating with this massive 
banquet. Now, in that story, Vashti refuses to dance. And she is dismissed from the household of the king. And the king starts his search for another queen, which leads then into the story of Esther. What's fascinating, though, is that Jewish tradition, even by the time of Jesus, records beyond what the scriptures say and says that Vashti was imprisoned, eventually she was beheaded, and her head was brought to King Ahasuerus on a platter. Sounds familiar. Then, following in Esther chapters 5 and 6, Esther herself plans a banquet. And at that banquet, the difference between a man who follows God and a man who is against the people of God is revealed. As Haman is condemned and Mordecai is exonerated. So those are, that's the backdrop to this story. Let's take ourselves into the story again. And listen to it once more. King Herod heard about this, the preaching that Jesus' apprentices were doing. People were being healed. Jesus' name was becoming well known. And in John 6, 14, some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said... And by the way, some of the manuscripts of the New Testament say, he said. In other words, Herod in his own mind is experiencing some confusion. Others say, even Herod himself may have been saying, well, he's Elijah. And others, maybe even Herod himself, were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. But finally, Herod, when he heard this, said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. He finally settles on this explanation for the miraculous powers that are being shown in Jesus' followers. But get this in verse 17. Verse 17 says, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. Now again, we might miss this in a quick reading. We might even miss it on second or third reading. In fact, we might miss it entirely if we're reading uh, just the English translations because there's a very unique, unusual, and emphatic sentence structure here that Mark uses as he writes in Greek. What verse 17 says is he himself, Herod, had given orders to have John arrested. Okay? Herod's a nervous man. He's a fearful man. He's a man who's confused about Jesus and confused about Jesus' followers. And now... He's feeling awfully guilty and afraid because, as it says, he himself, Herod, 
He was the one who had sent to have John arrested. One of the questions that arises as we read this is, on first reading, and I had this experience as I started into preparing this passage, it's like, what, what is this story doing here? We're talking about Jesus, he's sending out his disciples, he's telling them, shake the dust off your feet, he's telling them some people might not accept you, and then after we finish the story of today, we'll be moving on in verse 30 and beyond, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, Jesus walks on the water, Jesus gives some teachings to the religious leaders of the day. What in the world is this John story doing in the middle of all these stories about Jesus? In fact, this story is so unusual for John, there is no extended story in Mark's gospel, not John's gospel, in Mark's gospel, there is no extended story in the entire Gospel of Mark, where except this one, where Jesus is not the central player in the story. It's the only one. It stands out. It almost seems like it doesn't fit. But I think we're going to see that it does. Herod was the one who had sent, literally the text says, he himself was the one who had sent to have John arrested and have him bound and put in prison. What have we just read last week? I wish that I could see you and quiz you on this. Uh, I wish John back there could hear. Did his message come through last week? What was it that Jesus had done as we've been exploring for the past couple of weeks? He had sent, same word is used here. Jesus had sent his disciples, his apprentices, to do his work. Herod has sent his apprentices to throw John into prison. It's connected. Now, Herod did this because he was cowardly. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, verse 18 says, John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful, that is in God's law, for you to have your brother's wife. Now picture this. Um, John has been saying, and apparently he's been saying it publicly, not like just a little coffee one-on-one with Herod. John is saying publicly, this is not right. This is not what God's people do. This is not according to God's instructions. And Herod had been saying this. But notice, it's not Herod. Herod has to be bothered by it, but it's Herod's wife, Herodias, who is troubled by it. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Now, she was not able to because Herod, what? Feared John and protected him. Herod knew that he was a righteous and holy man. And yet, when when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled 
but he liked to listen to him. Can you feel the pull that's going on in the story? And as we're going to see, Herodias is just sitting in the background, holding this grudge, letting it grow stronger and stronger. It's a, it's a grudge against John, but really for Herodias, it's really a grudge against God's instruction. Unlike the people that were hearing Jesus, unlike the disciples that Jesus called and said, we will follow you, Herodias is resistant to the message of God. And she's nursing this grudge against John, but it's really against what God has said. She wants to kill him. She can't because Herod is afraid of John. He protects him. He likes to hear him. He's confused. He still likes to listen to him. And then we get to verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. Uh, Not opportune for Herod, by the way, but opportune time for Herodias. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet. High officials, military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, Herod, who has an extra high view of himself, and an extra low view of other people brings all these people in to see how great he is. And so the banquet's been going on. What we know about Roman banquets in this time is that there was a lot of food, a lot of drink, the alcohol was flowing, the guests and Herod himself are by this time pretty well gone. And as so often happened with Roman banquets, the banquet concluded either with a body drama or with erotic dancing. Herod, the man who says, I believe in God, partaking in this, he gives the banquet And at the end, the daughter of Herodias comes in and dances, and she pleases Herod and his dinner guests. Now, because of the euphemisms used here, we can miss the main point of this piece of the story. This is not ballet. This is not cute little dancing. This is evocative and erotic dancing in order to please and arouse the participants in Herod's birthday party. Now notice this, Herodias is, and we're unclear from history outside of the Bible, Herodias is either Herod's stepdaughter or perhaps even his own biological daughter. He brings her in, she dances, and when it says she pleased Herod and his dinner guests, that doesn't mean that they thought she was a nice young lady.
But the king says to her, in his intoxicated state, in his aroused state, he says to her, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. The dirty old man promises the woman anything she wants. And he promised her with an oath, he swore before God, whatever you ask, God help me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. So she goes to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, her mother said. And at once the girl hurried back into the king with a request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist. On a platter, the final course to be served by the waiters at this banquet. Herod's distressed because of his oaths, because he was afraid of his dinner guests. He doesn't want to make himself look bad. He didn't refuse her, and so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, brought back his head on a platter, presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. There is no happy ending to this story. Corruption, evil, lust, violence, intoxication prevail when the story ends in verse 29. So what are we to make of it? Let's look at the significance of this story placed in the center of Mark's story of Jesus. As we've said, it follows the story of the disciples being sent, of Jesus telling them, you may well be rejected in some places, and here are the steps you should take. They go out, they have a powerful ministry. Demons are cast out, people are healed. The story is followed, however, in Mark, by the feeding of the 5,000. At the end of the story, we find out Jesus is teaching, he's going out. The disciples have told him what they've done. They go off to a solitary place. The crowds come rushing in. John 6:35 by this time it was late in the day and the disciples said hey this is a remote place <laughs> it's like Jesus can't tell time so he needs the little reminder uh, it's a remote place it's already very late send the people away so they can go and get something to eat and Jesus says well you give them something to eat and then in verse 39 Jesus directed the people to sit down they sat down Groups of a hundred, groups of hundreds, groups of fifties, taking the five loaves, the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to distribute. And verse 42 says they all ate 
and were satisfied. Mark moves us from a story of Jesus' power, a story of death and violence and destruction, a gruesome banquet, to a story of the grand feast provided by Jesus. This also fits here because eventually in Mark chapter eight, we're gonna hear Jesus pose the same question that Herod was wrestling with to his own disciples. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? This story also fits in this place in Mark because the entire story of Mark, and we're about to come up to where Jesus will announce it explicitly for the first time, but Mark's entire story is rushing through these early days of Jesus' work to get to the point where Jesus goes to the cross, suffers, dies, and is raised again. We read here in our story today of the arrest of John in verse 17. Soon we will read in chapter 14 and chapter 15 about the arrest of Jesus. We read here in verse 19 of the death plot against John. In chapter 14, we will soon read of the death plot against Jesus. We read here in our story of the fear that drove Herod to make his decisions. Soon we will read of the fear that drove the leaders and eventually Pilate to act under fear and approve the execution of Jesus. We read here how Herod was pressured into executing Jesus by the plotting of his wife. We will soon read as we make our way through Mark in chapter 15, that Jesus, the innocent man, was executed under pressure that came from the outside. We'll also read, by the way, that it was Pilate's wife who was saying, don't, don't do it, flipping the story on its head. We read in our story here of John and his disciple, of John's death and his disciples coming to bury him. We will read in chapter 15 of Jesus' death and his disciples, his followers, burying him. What we don't read here in this story is a story of resurrection. What we will read in Jesus' story is a final story of resurrection. 
So what in the world is the significance of this story to your story and mine? Interesting historical narrative. Left scratching our heads why this is included here. Why would God tell us a story of one of his great men? A man of whom Jesus said in the other gospels that was greater than all other men that had been born to women on this earth. Of God leaving him to die? I mean, put yourself in, in John's perspective. You know, what must it have been like? He speaks for God. He's been sent to say, Jesus, the one greater than me, is coming. He, he, he accomplishes exactly what he set out to do. He's finished. He's ready for ministry retirement. Herod throws him in prison. And then we get the idea here, you know, Herod, Herod, he's puzzled by John, but he likes to listen to him. And this is written in such a way that it implies to us that every so often Herod would send somebody down to the prison and say, hey, bring John up. I want to listen to him again. And then Herod would get all confused and he'd, he'd like listening to John. He didn't like what he was hearing. Okay, take him back. Bring him out, take him back. Bring him out, take him back. You know, if you're John, this is really up and down. Every time somebody comes, oh, maybe, maybe this is my release. Maybe this is where God is going to set me free. And that last visit, maybe John is thinking, okay, this is the time. But instead of that, they blindfold him, they lay him over a chopping block. And with a broad sword, they take off his head. What does this have to do with my, my story and yours? Now, on the surface, we could get some lessons from this, right? Um, I suppose I could preach to you about the dangers of intoxication and erotic entertainment but I don't think that would do justice to what God has for us here. Yes, we could learn something from Herod as a negative example saying, look, I can't let fear and shame make decisions for me or I'm gonna make a bad decision. But that's still out here on the surface. We, we could learn from Herodias, again, a negative example, you know, don't, don't hold a grudge against God. Somebody's going to get hurt. But that wouldn't really fit entirely what God is saying here. I think there are three things here that make this story, as we read it, as we engage it, experience it, see where it fits, that make this story fit ours. One is this. Mere human speculation does not lead to the truth about who Jesus really is. Take that in for a minute. 
Mere human speculation, the best thoughts that we can put together, the best discussions, the best brainstorming sessions we can have as human beings is not going to lead us to a clear understanding to the truth about who Jesus really is. Jesus is not John. Jesus is not Elijah. Jesus is not merely a prophet like all the prophets that came before him. In fact, again, going back to the opening verse of Mark's story, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of God. Human speculation will not lead us to that truth. Only God can tell us that truth. The second way that I believe this story relates to our story is that the focus here is on the cross. Although John is the, pl- the player in the story that is front and center, center, the story is taking us beyond the mere story of John to look at the story of Jesus, his arrest, his death, his death that paid for the sins of the people. Jesus who hung on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took on the sins of many. Jesus who, as our confession says, was dead and was buried. That he even descended into hell He experienced hell on behalf of you and me. Jesus, who was resurrected and lives forever and is coming again. This is a story about that Jesus, which bears out what I believe is the message of this entire book. When you read Genesis, look for Jesus. When you read Exodus, look for Jesus. When you read the Psalms, look for Jesus. When you read Proverbs, look for Jesus. When you read the prophets, look for Jesus. When you read Paul's letters, look for Jesus. When you read Peter's letters, look for Jesus. When you read the book of Revelation, look for Jesus. For he is the main character in God's eternal story. The final thing that is of significance for you and for me here is a serious one. Jesus had already said to his disciples back in verse... uh, 8, 9, 10, where is it there? Okay, verse 11, and if any place will not welcome you, 
or listen to you, leave that place, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony to them, as a testimony against them. Uh, By the way, I hope this was clear to you. This is not, if people reject you and the message of Jesus, give them the finger. That is not what shaking off the dust implies. In fact, I think it references clear back to the story of Genesis, where God said, if you rebel against me to Adam and Eve, you were made from this dust, and to dust you will return. And so Jesus tells them, if you go and there's dust on your sandals from that place, shake it off so it can go back to the ground, signifying that without Jesus, without his work, there is death. But also so that as that dust goes back to the ground, God might do his work and take that dust and make something new out of it. Jesus had warned them, some places are going to reject you, and this story shows us how far that rejection might go. It might be words of rejection, and it might mean losing our heads. The story is also very clear about the cost because it reminds us, if I may put these words in Jesus' mouth, I'm not always going to rescue you from the current crisis, from the current threat. Sometimes I will, and sometimes I will not. I won't always pull you out of what you are immediately facing. Like John, you may be in prison and your hopes may go up and then your hopes may go down and up and down and I might not in the end give you a happy ending on this earth. But we cannot forget that this cost also comes with reward because Jesus wins in the end. His story ends with his resurrection. His story ends with his ascending back to the Father and ruling from there. And as our confession tells us, from there he will come to raise the living and the dead. His story ends with resurrection and rule and return and the making of all things right. Father, you have written a story that includes the entire history of the universe that includes the entire history of the human race that includes the entire history of myself 
and my sisters and my brothers at refuge. And as we listen and experience various aspects of that story, teach us to trust. Teach us to trust more than the results that we hope for. Teach us to trust in you. Prevent us from using our own speculation to try to box you in and to figure out who you and your son and your spirit really are. Let us listen to you and learn from you. And Father, one day we wait. We're desperate for the time of Jesus coming when all things will be made right. Lord, may your word speak to us as a living story. May it run after us and chase us down wherever we are. And may your word grab hold of us and turn us around to face you because of what your son did and through the power of your spirit. And may we know the grace that you give us as God our Father. May we know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And may we know the love of Jesus. Amen.